podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 246, 737 MAX Analysis with Ben Bowman, Part 1, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome to the show about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Today, we start a special series on the 737 MAX. You know, although we're a general aviation podcast, we feel this is a really important topic, which all aviators can learn from. And these are really important lessons that were gleaned through uh, two accidents and also some discussions afterward. There's some people that have done a lot of really great analysis on this, and uh, one of them is Ben Bowman. And uh, joining us today is Ben. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks for having me, Carl. Also joining us, and you've heard his voice before, is Justin Ash, who is an instructor pilot in a simulator for an airline. Welcome, Justin. Hey, thanks for having me back, Carl. Appreciate it. Well, before we begin, we just have a couple words from our sponsor. Take it away, Larry. Do you want to pursue a career in aviation as a pilot, air traffic controller, mechanic, or dispatcher? Or do you just want to earn that commercial or instrument rating, but you need help paying for it? The Aerospace Scholarships Guide at AviationCareersPodcast.com has over $50 million in available scholarships. Many of these go unused because people don't apply for them. For just $10, you'll receive a full-year subscription to the guide, which is updated monthly. Every scholarship is personally verified to make sure it's accurate and still available. More information is at AviationCareersPodcast.com. So in the Scholarships Guide, remember that we also have a coupon code called the Pay It Forward coupon. You can receive one-year access for free to the Scholarships Guide. So jump in there. Quantities are limited uh, through you know the generosity of so many others. Uh, they've been willing to give away a Scholarships Guide to you so that you possibly can get maybe all of your flight training paid for, at least a portion of it. So go check that out there. We have 32 new scholarships, uh, 18 updates, and a new category, Scholarships for a Adults. And we're also going more towards some of the aerospace engineering scholarships uh, well beyond the $50 million mark. We're actually closing on uh, in on $100 million in scholarships now. So we're really, really excited about that. Now entering cruise flight. Anyway, let's get started with the show here. And uh, again, with uh, Ben Bowman and Justin Ash, uh, we're talking about the 737 MAX. But before we do uh, that discussion. One of the things I like to do is, I know, Justin, you've been on the show a few times, but quick, uh, if you could just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background, then Ben, we'll, we'll move on to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yep, I'm an airline pilot uh, with major airline here. I also do, I'm also in their training department. Uh, still do a lot of GA flying, actually been doing more of that than I have the actual airline flying with everything going on in the world that we have today. So, that's been really exciting. And um, yeah, just a big part of GA, general aviation as well as airline and a big, I'm always a big enthusiast for training and everything. Uh, still do a lot of GA training as well myself. 
Well, and, and I appreciate your bringing this topic to the fore for us here on the podcast, because I think this is really important, especially towards the end, the, uh, the last few in the series. We're going to define the problem, but uh, we also come up with some great solutions. So again, Justin, thanks for that. Uh, joining us today is somebody who's never been on the podcast before, but uh, somebody who has an extensive background in aviation, uh, both from a, a flying perspective and an administrative perspective, and that's uh, Ben Bowman. So Ben, just tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get started. Uh, yeah, my name is Ben Bowman. Uh, I'm a, currently a pilot for a major airline, uh, flying the 737. Uh, I have flown the 737 MAX as well, but I uh, also have a background in uh, aviation management, training, uh, standardization, uh, and uh, auditing. And Ben, you know, with, with all that, you, uh, from what I can tell, have really become an expert on the 737 MAX issue. You've done extensive research other than just uh, flying it. And uh, one of the things that you've, or there's a lot you've gleaned from this. Uh, so we have a lot of stuff to cover here, Ben, and, and it's uh, quite extensive. So uh, for those listening, hang on to your hats. By the way, all the links that we talk about, no need to write any notes down. It's all going to be in the bottom of this in the show notes. And uh, this is going to be part of a five-part series and it's going to be we're going to release it and also I, I highly recommend that you listen to each episode and just kind of understand what the problem is and that's what we're going to do here first describe what that is first and go forward but first thing we need to do is it describe very simply you know what is this uh, most people know what a 737 is but what is a 737 max ben well, you know, the 737, uh, it's had a couple iterations. Uh, it was originally designed uh, back in the uh, uh, 50s and 60s, uh, various portions of it. And so uh, they've come out with new models over the years. Uh, 737 is still a 737, but uh, every decade or two, they introduce new engines or a new cockpit avionics, uh, or a new wing, uh, and uh, do little incremental updates on uh, all the safety systems on the aircraft, uh, just to bring it back into the uh, most up-to-date format. And most of us have seen the 737s. Uh, I remember as a child, and I've been around a few decades, uh, flying in the 737s down with those really small engines, the 100 series and the 200 series, and I'm not even sure if they're flying anymore, anybody's operating them, but uh, but that was kind of my introduction with Eastern Airlines on, on how, you know, flying on an airplane. So we all, you know, have our memories in aviation. That's one of my first really important airline memories is, the, is flying on the 737 to the Bahamas. So uh, so it's, it's near and dear to my heart, that's for sure. Uh, but with this 737 MAX, uh, first of all, why why this aircraft? I mean, why the new version? Why the MAX? How? What are going to be the benefits of the 737? Well, you know, most aircraft have a, a, a long uh, life, the individual airframe itself. Uh, most of them last 20, 30 years uh, in uh, high-frequency service, like with an airline. Um so you don't really replace it every couple of years uh, like you would maybe a car. But uh, so over that time span of 20, 30, 40, 50,000 hours of, of flying an aircraft, uh, you know, there's a lot of technological advances during that time. And so when you do end up having to go and replace an $80 million airplane, you want the best and uh, latest technology, most fuel efficient engines, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so about every 20 years, they do a full refresh of the airplane, uh, like I said, with uh, mostly concentrating on the engines and the wings. What makes this engine so different? 
Uh, it's a lot bigger uh, than they've ever put on a 737, uh, and that is what caused some of the problems. Uh, the 737, like you mentioned, used to have really skinny engines. Uh, <laughs> that was uh, partly due to the design of the engine itself, but also partially uh, because of the aircraft itself was designed to work off of unimproved strips where they might not have baggage carts and uh, loading belts and things like that. So they actually wanted to make sure that the aircraft was low enough to the ground that they could hand load bags into the cargo bins. And that actually is one of the things that was a challenge also on the 7.3, right? Yeah. So uh, over the years, they've gotten bigger and bigger engines to try to increase the efficiency. And, uh, you know, when you design an airplane to have a an engine that's only two feet in diameter, going to an engine that's almost six feet in diameter is uh, quite a challenge. So uh, what they ended up trying to do uh, with all of these iterations is they just move the engines further forward and they sort of sling them up uh, and forward from the uh, from the wing uh, so that they don't have to increase the gear, the landing gear length too much. So there's all these iterations. So let's talk specifically about the Max. We are talking about the engine. Is there anything else that they've done to us? Let's start with the wing. Is there anything else that they've done to the wing of the aircraft? The wing itself is uh, just more efficient, essentially. There's some some really technical... uh, advancements to some of the controls in the wings uh, from, uh, you know, the, the spoilers are now fly-by-wire, uh, for instance. So they're uh, run by computers rather than cables. But that doesn't really have much impact on uh, how the aircraft actually flies. Uh, most of the change really is in the pylon to the engine where the location of the engine itself uh, is very far forward and actually changed the characteristics of the uh, flying of the aircraft. So on the outside, that that's a change. But how about on the inside? Is there any inside? Uh, and obviously, I think that's why we're talking today is uh, on in the cockpit. What has changed for the seven thirty seven Max? So on the inside, uh, you know, we got some some niceties on the inside. We got bigger screens and things like that. But the biggest uh, change that they didn't really think was going to be a big change at all uh, is what's called the MCAS system, the New Hearing Characteristics Augmentation System. Uh, and that has to, that was a system that was created because of the uh, location of the engine. Uh, and it basically is a way to operate the aircraft's uh, pitch trim system, the elevator trim system. So this new MCAS system, I know there's, uh, so uh, one of the things I had a tough time wrapping my head around when I first saw this, what is, if you could compare like the next generation and and then Max, is this, uh, how would they compare? So the 737 next gen, the NG, um, it it all comes down basically to stall performance, uh, how the aircraft is going to fly when, uh, or recover from an aerodynamic stall on the wing. So uh, on the 737 NG, you recover from a stall much like you would any uh, high-performance aircraft. You push the nose down and you push the uh, throttles forward, uh, gain your airspeed back, and then you can start climbing again. Uh, on the max, due to the location of the engines and the size of the engines, the engines actually uh, start creating lift uh, when they're in a close to a stall, uh, close to an aerodynamic stall on the wing. And so uh, one of the problems that they found is because 
the engines were creating lift, it uh, changed the characteristics of how the airplane controlled and made it uh, basically easier to worsen a stall or harder to get out of the stall. The control forces were different. Uh, and because they want every 737 to fly like every other 737, they introduced this system uh, called the MCAS system, like I said, that uh, basically introduces extra force to try to help the pilot get the nose down. So they introduced this new, uh, what they call the MCAS system. We'll get to that in a second. But normally, when we talk about these systems in an airplane and these introductions, uh, we don't go into much analysis within the media. And uh, one of the reasons is that uh, a lot of it is transparent to the user and also transparent to the customer. But there are some things that have changed and some things that have happened that are causing this MCAS system to get a lot of uh, press lately. And for just so that people know what's happened, because some people may be just introduced to the Max and just start listening, so why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about the 737 MAX? Can you kind of give us a description as to why this wasn't really a transparent change? Yeah, and most people don't really talk about the nitty-gritty systems of aircraft, um, you know, beyond the, the sort of superficial, uh, bigger engines, better cockpit systems, things like that. Uh, but this pretty obscure system on uh, an aircraft that, I mean, even pilots didn't know it existed. Uh, got a lot of press, uh, unfortunately, because it was involved uh, and and has instigated uh, two uh, deadly crashes in the aircraft. And those two crashes, we'll talk a little bit about more later, as far as some uh, you know actually detailed analysis. Um, but we really need to look at this MCAS system, and uh, so. Again, the MCAS, uh, what does that stand for, first of all? And, uh, you know, just, and I know you kind of described it before. Is there anything else that you want to add to that description of the MCAS system? Yeah, the, the MCAS is, uh, it stands for Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System. And uh, all it does is it augments the, uh, it's a system that augments the maneuvering characteristics of the aircraft uh, to make it seem more like uh, an older aircraft. And uh, this is, a system that, uh, like I mentioned before, operates on the uh, pitch trim system, uh, so the the up and down of the aircraft nose, and it's it's an interesting system, uh, partially because this is a system that, at its root, is a very basic system. Every airplane has a pitch trim system, uh, from the most basic, where you just have a little wheel that you roll up or down on a on a piper. Uh, to some of the more advanced ones that you might see in an Airbus where it's all computer logic and uh, just crazy magic. But uh, so this is a uh, this is a system that basically evolved from uh, from just a wheel with an electric motor all the way to having an autopilot, having automated systems that uh, help you when the flaps come up. Uh, and then, of course, with this uh, MCAS system and uh you know, we'll talk a little bit later, I think, about how modifying something that's very basic like this to try to maybe do more than it wasn't intended to do uh, might have been one of the big problems uh, that Boeing faced with this. 
Yeah, we, we'll definitely get into that in a, in a second. But, um, you know, you talked about trim systems. It's really interesting. It, they are so different in so many different airplanes, and there's many different ways to trim out the, the control pressures, et cetera. Uh, but some trim systems do more uh, than, uh, than some people expect. Uh, so when you make that leap from the Piper up to uh, a jet or, or et cetera, your trim system might be doing more than you think. Uh, so, And that's why we're kind of talking about that here. Uh, as far as the this whole MCAS system, um, in and in introducing this to the aircraft, it really a lot of the questions that I come up with in my mind are why you know why in the world did we need to put this in the airplane? Well, and I was just going to talk the um, I think the other important part that you guys are piggybacking to piggyback off of you guys. With the trim system, I think the MCAS system, I think it's also important to point out how critical of a system the trim system actually is, even if it's just a basic electric trim system in a Piper, for instance, because that system's connected to the autopilot if there is one or even if there's not. And you have all kinds of things. And sometimes I think we take for granted how much the trim system can aerodynamically affect the airplane. You know, if you have a trim runaway or a full nose up trim or full nose down, even though it's a trim tab, we think of it as a smaller control surface. It can actually cause the airplane to do as much or nearly as much as the larger control surfaces like the elevator and things like that. And it can cause a, a, a situation where you exceed the critical angle attack and and uh, produce a stall even, and uh, and that can happen in many different types of aircraft. So I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up as far as the trim system is concerned. Um, but uh, but going back to the question, you know what this 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 MCAS, you know why it seems like there's so many other systems out there. Why did they introduce this specific MCAS system to the 737? Well, you know, I talked a little bit about these sort of iterations of the 737. And uh, one of the big things that uh, that FAA and Boeing have had to uh, have has been a challenge for them is to make sure that you change enough on the airplane to get those increased efficiencies, uh, cost savings, etc. But you can't change it enough that it's a different airplane. And so... Could they have put in uh, a complicated fly-by-wire system like they have in, I mean, even in-house in uh, Boeing, the 777 and the 787 have uh, uh, have fly-by-wire systems. They could have put in that alpha floor logic and all that stuff that uh, you see on these advanced airplanes, but it wouldn't have been a 737 anymore. There would have been too much change to allow a 737 pilot to easily transition into uh, at the max. Why is that important to an airline? Cost savings. Right. Yeah. So, so you may have to go out and get a different type rating, et cetera. And there are yeah. iterations of every airplane that are like that. We have to have what's called differences training, correct? Yeah, there's differences training. And, and I will say, uh, you know, the, the stone cold capitalists would say cost savings, but there are actually quite a few uh, safety aspects of having something that's not too different either, because by having uh, commonality between fleet types, uh, it makes it a lot more simple for a pilot to uh, go from, you know, for instance, if you're operating a mixed fleet of NGs and Maxes or, uh, or, or A319s and A321s, uh, it makes it a lot easier for pilots to fly 
different models of the same aircraft on the same day, even uh, without having to sort of reorient yourself every so, time you step into the cockpit. So yeah, I think it's, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I think it's exactly. And it's also remember that it's not just Boeing that does this. It's Airbus. I mean, we see that now with the A321, the A, well, you got the A319, A320, 321, XL, and now the XLR. I mean, these are all different variances. Yeah, don't on forget the, the LR too. Yeah, and the LR, exactly. So it's, you know, and so it's not really a pointing the finger at Boeing for doing that. Every aircraft manufacturer does this because they want that commonality that Ben is describing. So that commonality, the training for the differences could be possibly in a simulator or it could just be possibly a, a book or watching a slideshow. Some of these changes are that simple. Yeah, one of the great things about technology these days is you, know, you used to have to, every time you wanted to get your recurrent training, you had to go and sit in a dark room watching a slideshow or or even worse, the the old school projectors where you had the, the plastic film on the light being projected on the wall uh, that you would write on. And uh, so now with technology, of course, you have interactive courses on your iPad uh, or computer and uh, you know, it, that's done quite a bit for training, uh, not just recurrent, but also new training. Um, you know, they, they go so far as they have procedure trainers on your uh, actual iPad where you click a button and it does exactly what the airplane would do. Okay. And those are awesome systems, makes it us safer pilots too, uh, because we can actually train on those. Say you're in between flights or whatever, and you want to look at a system, you can do that on your computer. It's pretty, uh, a lot of these systems, I should say, a lot of these training systems. Um, but getting back to the MCAS system, something that I think a lot of listeners and myself are looking at is trying to get a visual as to what has changed. I, I know that in many aircraft where there's been a new iteration, there really hasn't been much that's changed in the cockpit for me, maybe a, uh, there's an indication that's different. Maybe a flap setting looks a little bit different, uh, but the changes are fairly transparent. I don't think that's totally true of the MCAS system, is it? It, it is and it isn't. Um, in terms of the, the MCAS as a system in and of itself, there's actually zero uh, transparency in the cockpit. You don't even know that the, the system exists. Uh, now, you may notice the trim running uh, because uh, for those of us who have seen any videos of a 737 or sat in a 737, uh, you, there's a big trim wheel that makes a lot of noise when it clacks and clacks and changes the trim on the airplane. Uh, so you might notice it happening without uh, any input from you, but the MCAS system is actually just sort of an extension of what's called the speed trim system on the 737. And so uh, right after takeoff on the 737, you'll see the trim automatically start to move a few seconds after takeoff. And that's uh, in order to, the, the airplane anticipates you're gonna be accelerating because you're taking off. So it says, hey, I know you're gonna be accelerating, so I'm gonna start some trim for you. or uh, I know that you're going to put up the flaps, so I'm going to start some trim for you. So you may see the trim wheel running, and it may be due to the MCAS system operating, but you have no idea. Uh, there's no light that says MCAS that comes on. And I think that's really one of the biggest uh, issues that happened with this. 
So that is exactly what I wanted to know. There's, but is there anything else? Because again, when we put systems in aircraft, uh, there it's rare that there's something new in the cockpit. Or are, are there any other indicators or or any type of uh, switches, dials, etc., that have been placed in the cockpit due to the SEMCAS system? Uh, all the switches are the same. Uh, they have uh, disconnection switches uh, in the cockpit that are uh, have been in the 737 for decades. Uh, stab trim, uh, stabilizer trim, disconnect switches. So those switches are the same. Now, there is an electronic indication that could uh, act as a clue uh, that the MCAS system is operating, uh, and that's uh, uh, what's called the AOA, the angle of attack disagree. Uh, that light um, uh, or that, that uh, indication is something that was supposed to be included, but accidentally was uh, included in, as part of an option, uh, which is for the AOA indicator, uh, an angle of attack indicator, which shows you exactly where uh, the angle of attack sensors on the airplane are pointing. So this AOA disagree type of thing, and the AOA, indica- that was actually an option, always been an option? The AOA disagree uh, indication was supposed to be standard, uh, but it, through, uh, I mean, we most people know that when once you start programming uh, computers, you know, we've all programmed our Garmin's uh, in GA airplanes, even garbage in, garbage out. Uh, one missed keystroke here uh, can uh, cause errors. So uh, one of the issues was that this uh, AOA disagree was a uh, was supposed to be standard, but accidentally got labeled as an option. Uh, that tied into the AOA indicator. So is there anything else on this as far as the MCAS system we need to know as far as uh, details on it before we move into the pilot's perspective? Well, you know, I I thought it was really interesting when Justin brought up uh, that, you know, it's, it's a trim system. It doesn't sound like it should be that big of a deal. And right. You know, one of the things that I always, you know, I was always hammered in uh, when I was a student pilot and, uh, you know, transitioning to airlines uh, and larger aircraft was, you know, always keep the airplane trimmed, hands off. You want to be able to never fly hands off, but always be able to take your hands off and the airplane shouldn't do anything that you're not expecting. And, you know, one of the biggest uh, issues that, ended up coming out of this was it's just a trim system. It's a small little tab on the elevator that eventually created over a hundred pounds of force on the, the elevator and the control uh, wheel. So it essentially became impossible to control the airplane just because of the little trim system. Well, and that's, that's kind of exactly, that's what we were kind of discussing earlier. And then to add to that, a lot of people have also said with the trim system, I've heard people say, well, why didn't they know or it was running, right? You talked about the big <clears throat> big wheel, excuse me, that's in there. Anybody's been on 737. Well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but as a 737 pilot, you get so used to that wheel running all the time, making sure. that noise all the time that you don't, 
it becomes just a part of it. It's kind of like when you get in your car and you drive to work and then you get to work and you're like, wait a minute, how did I get here? Right. It's just a part of what you're doing. And so you're almost, that becomes ancillary to the other things you're doing in the cockpit. And so it may be running more than necessary or, or not doing exactly what you wanted to do, but you're not going to pick up on that right away because it's running all the time. Right. Yeah. And, and actually one of the most insidious things about it is that, the time where the MCAS system would likely uh, uh, come into play or which did come into play during both of these accidents uh, is actually during a time that you're going to hear it running all the time because your flaps are coming up, you're increasing your speed. And so it's running at a completely typical uh, portion of flight. And so you, you wouldn't even notice it until, uh, you start noticing that the airplane feels really heavy and uh, is getting harder to control. And if you don't have a lot of experience uh, or opportunity to hand fly the airplane and uh, really know how the airplane should feel, you may not know the difference. And I, and I think what's will be cool about this series or really nice about this series is we're going to go into that and talk about the different phases with the different incidents and exactly what you're saying, how that kind of affected the pilots and the experience level of the different pilots in the different incidents and accidents that took place and how the results were different. Yeah, Justin, that, and that's what I'm excited about in this series, but uh, and Ben, you know, one of the things I'd like to know, though, and something I think we haven't addressed, I'm assuming that, and not being really a, really well read in this issue, I'm assuming that all the pilots were briefed on this new MCAS system. So, so I guess that's the real question. Uh, were when people went out, pilots went out to fly this, uh, were they aware of this new MCAS system, and how were they introduced to it, if they were introduced? Uh-huh. Unfortunately not. Uh, We weren't told about this system at all. Uh, It was sort of assumed that we would uh, just treat it as an extension of the speed trim system that's already on the airplane. Um, They did study what a failure might cause uh, or what uh, the the procedure might be for a MCAS failure, Uh, but it was deemed a a low-risk failure. But what I really think is interesting about these two accidents uh, is the first accident, nobody knew what the MCAS system was. Nobody had ever heard of it uh, in the general public uh, of the general population of pilots, I should say. Um, The second accident, they did know. Uh, This was common knowledge at that point uh, that this system existed. And yet uh, they still made some decisions uh, and there were still some uh, hurdles in place uh, that ended up not allowing them to recover from the situation, even knowing about the MCAS system. So in your opinion, do you feel that the pilots should have, based on what you just said, should have been informed of the system being installed? Yeah. I, I, my, in my opinion, I, I do think that it's valuable. Uh, you know, I've, we all have family who ask us about uh, flying and uh, especially when something's in the news like this, uh, I had a lot of family ask me about uh the the what the MCAS system is and uh, things like that and you know the analogy that I always tried to bring up uh, you have all these new safety features on cars uh, lane assist and automatic braking and things like that they seem really simple uh, at face value and 
you think, okay, there's a car coming towards me. It, my, my car automatically brakes for it. That's great. Really simple to understand. But if you don't know that you don't even have that one sentence uh, description of that system and you're driving along the road and all of a sudden your car just slams on the brakes, you're going to be alarmed. And that startle factor, uh, that alarm factor is something that you you can't have in an aircraft uh, because things just move so quickly and and even a couple extra seconds of of reaction time can uh, really make a difference. And I'm glad you brought up the analogy as in the car with all these new technologies that we have. So we can all relate to that if we are driving one of those those new cars. And I know I've been startled by that in, in my own vehicle on the ground and not so much in the airplane. So uh, this can actually possibly cause uh, an accident, not understanding a system, even in, in a vehicle, in a car. But <clears throat> in this airplane, just so that we truly understand why this can cause an accident. Can you describe in a little more detail as to how this new MCAS system could have caused such a crash? So basically, it goes back to what the the actual purpose of the MCAS system is. The MCAS is very simply designed to give the pilot a little bit of extra nose down force, so uh, to to drop the nose of the aircraft so that they can uh, break a stall, so that they can speed up. Neither of the aircraft involved in this accident were anywhere close to a stall. Uh, if anything, it uh, was going to be an overspeed situation uh, that uh, actually ended up damaging these aircraft too. Uh, so basically what happened is the input data for the MCAS system became faulty uh, for a couple different reasons. So you're not near a stall, but the aircraft thinks you are partially. And so what it does is it says, Hey, no, you got to speed up. You have to drop the nose. Well, because the data, the input data was uh, faulty, it ended up really just basically continuing to try to fix the problem. Uh, And by doing that, it made the aircraft uncontrollable because the aircraft still said, nope, you're still too slow. You're still too slow. You got to speed up. You got to speed up even when they're going 400 miles an hour. So was there any way that this could have been prevented, maybe, if we turn the system off? If you turn the system off, yes. However, uh, we talked a little bit about reaction time. And when you only have a few seconds to react on something like this, when the startle factor of what is going on uh, comes into play, you you lose half of your time that you might have to react. And so by that time that you do finally react to the problem, uh, as we'll see in uh, one of these accidents, now the airplane's too far gone, you have to do something else in order to actually come back and recover again. Uh, So now you've created a new problem that you have to recover from before you can fix the first problem with the MCAS. 
And that'll be actually part of the series coming up is we're going to go in detail into some of those accidents. Uh, but uh, this is a, was a good uh, description and background of what's happening. Is there anything else, Ben, that you want to add before we move into the next part of our series on actually uh, analyzing uh, two of those accidents? I think the biggest thing to, to add uh, on all of this is, as in so many of these accidents, um, the, the main thing is just fly the airplane. Uh, you know, there's always going to be some system that is new to you or, you know, how often do we hear what's it doing now? Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you have to fly the airplane. And um, by, by doing that, you can create time. And as we all know, when you create time, you can solve an issue. Yeah, and that's uh, being an Airbus driver. We always say that just about every day. What's it doing now? Yeah. Uh, but uh, but again, understanding the systems, you can quickly answer that question, uh, and that's something we're going to find out is very important in uh, future episodes. Well, this has been great, Ben. Justin, did you want to have anything to add before we close out this uh, first part of the series? Yeah, I think it's been great. Uh, appreciate all the information. Ben always has a. A lot of good information, especially on this. It's always a good conversation. Yeah, I just want to pay the training side of it, I think, is very important. I'll just add from that perspective how this system, along with things that have happened in a, before uh, and then everything with this system and the subsequent accidents with it, you know, the FAA and the training environment, especially in the United States and also globally, hopefully, we have really started to focus back on hand flying. And that is a huge part of training now that has, it kind of got, I don't want to say overlooked, but there was so much changing technologically in airplanes for so long from the late 90s, early 2000s, all the way up to currently that we were focusing a lot on that. And now we're really going back and in initial training at the airlines and recurrent training at the airlines I would say we are approaching where half, if not more, is done with these systems turned off and we're getting back to hand flying. And that piggybacks off what Ben was saying. And that that is the critical thing to understand as a new pilot, as a professional pilot, wherever you are in your career in aviation, you need to turn stuff off and fly the airplane. You need to know what it feels like on the control surfaces and everything else. And I apologize if I'm getting a little preachy, but this is just something that really hits home for me because I see it every day. And you need to know what the control surfaces of your airplane feel like in different phases of flight and really what those systems are doing um, as you're flying. And, and I think that's a huge takeaway from all of this. And we'll get more into it, like you said. So. Fly the airplane. That is uh, one of the most important points. Well, uh, well, Ben and Justin, it's been awesome having you guys here, and uh, we're going to follow us up with another uh, four parts to this series. And for those that are really interested in what you can take away from this episode, uh, think about this. Just just fly the airplane. Also, if you have any questions, don't forget in the show notes below, you can send us an email as far as contact information, stuckmikeafcast.com slash contact. Uh, also can send uh, both uh, myself and also the folks here that are, are co 
co-host today. Uh, those questions, we will forward them on if you want to hear some responses in some future episodes. Hope you're enjoying the series. Hope you will enjoy the series. Whether you're somebody who's just starting out in aviation, you'll learn something, or somebody who's a professional aviator right now, you always can learn something through the analysis of uh, some of the new systems and aircraft and also some of the difficulties and challenges those new systems have had, just like this new MCAS system in the 737 MAX. And this has been a 737 MAX analysis with Ben Bowman and Justin Ash. I'm Carl Valeria. I really appreciate your listening to us today. We'll talk to you next episode and safe flying out there. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production. Thank you.